Gosh Pods, pediatric educational podcast series from Great Ormond Street Hospital. Gosh Pods are brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Good morning. I'm delighted to invite you to the next uh, Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics podcast. And uh, this morning we have Professor Francesco Montoni, who is a professor of neurology at the Institute of Child Health and UCL and has been really involved in the push to develop new treatments for children with complex neuromuscular disease. Francesco, good morning. Good morning, Joe. Thank you for asking me to take part to this initiative. So that's great. We're we planning today to talk about innovative therapies, which we defined some time ago as newly introduced or modified therapies with unproven effects or side effects that we tend to use in the best interests of the child. Can you discuss your background and your role in the development of these really you know, really exciting new treatments. Well, I'm, uh, my work is, um, from an academic perspective, exclusively in, in neuromuscular disorders. And um, probably a decade ago, um, I started the journey of translational research medicine in these conditions. Uh, until then, there was no, uh, if you like, experimental therapy for condition like Duchenne muscular dystrophy or spinal muscular atrophy. These are common genetic conditions. And the, uh, if you like, I have a mixed uh, experience between uh, investigator-initiated studies and uh, industry-sponsored study. And at the beginning, um, largely the efforts were uh, f- following investigator-initiated studies. So we um, obtained funding from uh, UK government and uh, and uh, the MRC to develop one particular uh, innovative therapy f- for Duchenne muscular dystrophy using synthetic antisense oligonucleotides um, that uh, are given weekly intravenously to people with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, hoping to obtain some benefit. And then I think this is you know this is now the grant was uh, in 2003, uh, so it's uh, give you an idea. Um, of um, the, probably the beginning of the journey. Um, but I think that now the great majority of efforts are industry-driven, and uh, in a place like ours at Gertrude Street Hospital, we uh, probably have at any one time maybe easily a dozen or 20 neuromuscular clinical trials, uh, the great majority industry-driven. And, and now with... Uh, understanding of different pathways dealing with, uh, if you like, each and uh, every single aspect uh, that could be potentially uh, considered amenable for therapeutic intervention. Great. I, I guess just for some people listening who aren't that familiar, it's important these these illnesses are, as you say, some are very common, some are rarer, but they have very serious effects with either death in some children uh, or young adults but also quite quite severe um impairment in in children uh, and some of the treatments that are being developed are really changing the diseases which i i guess is an important background for people to understand who are not in this area before we talk about the ethical aspect would you um expand a bit well, on that? yeah i think that uh, you are right and it does actually uh, also connect uh, quite well with the ethical uh, ethical aspect because you know from one end um, these are very severe condition the uh, uh, you know the example of spinal muscular atrophy uh, this is the most common form 
of uh, motor neuron disease affecting children is the second most common cause of uh, genetic death uh, and uh, for infants and uh, and it, they are devastating condition that are uh, you know quite common condition uh, for a genetic disease they are they have a frequency that is really not different from cystic fibrosis that people will have uh, a, a probably a, a, a lot of experience with and so from one perspective the uh, the if like the uh, uh, the impetus to try to obtain something to help these children who apart from the survival um, have a uh, you know they're very dependent on others uh, and they are unfortunately very frequently unwell so uh, you know job better than i do how often unfortunately some patients with this condition end up in intensive care units so apart from their cost is really a complicated way to live a life um, the so that is one aspect and therefore the effort to try to obtain something that is um, helpful for this patient makes sense. I think at the other end of the ethical spectrum, I think, that I think needs to be acknowledged is also the fact that often um, investigators and companies for sure, um, if they're going to test a new idea or a new medicinal product uh, and they consider the risk-benefit, uh, they will not infrequently start from condition uh, such as this condition we are talking about, where the risk benefit um, allows to take forward things that, um, if you like, if you were dealing with uh, somebody who is, you know, a teenager or young adult who is otherwise uh, has a mild disease, you would not consider because the risk benefit um, at the beginning, when the potential efficacy and uh, adverse event of these therapies are not known, uh, the issue about risk benefit, of course, is important. So to some extent, um, and the, the several of these conditions have been, uh, I'm not saying used, because use indicates, if you like, uh, uh, indicates a, a strategy to um, uh, distribute the risk more in the patient with a higher uh, uh, morbidity. But at the same time, I think you can see that it is a rational step that of starting uh, from condition where patients have no alternatives and uh, and where a higher burden on this event is probably still justified. Uh, and I think th this is a path that, um, especially now for some of the uh, AV gene therapy, is really being... Um, um, uh, you know, done by a number of industrial partners who have a portfolio of therapeutic intervention that eventually, if found to be sufficiently safe and effective in some of the children with severe neuromuscular condition, they could well have application for adults with much milder conditions. Mm. And these adults are very common conditions. So I think that it is important to recognize that there is, if you like, a... Um, a link between severity of the condition, the ethical aspect that you are aware, and, and uh, at some point also commercial interest from companies. I, I think I, I'm going to, before we move on, I think you've, you've discussed something that's really been interesting in my career, that the old idea that you used to start new drugs in adults and test them in healthy volunteers and 
only when adults had had so many that were safe would you even think about giving them to children. And at that time, we had all the children with really complex, devastating diseases weren't allowed to be part of trials. And I think it's a major change in medicine and how we do research. That That's a really good thing that research is now done with children who, who've got very complex diseases, where, whereas, you know, a couple of decades ago, that would have been much harder. So that's a big change. Um, I, I, I guess I'll just I'll come on to the second question, if I may. I, there's, there's an ethical tension in uh, probably has been largely resolved, but the idea about using innovative therapies um, or not using them, the idea you might withhold potential rescue therapy uh, in order to protect a vulnerable population's rights from potentially harmful, ineffective, sometimes fraudulent treatments. And I guess, you know, we, we're talking here about well-developed treatments with scientific basis that have been through some good early developmental stages. Sometimes treatments are being used when they haven't been through those stages because people are very desperate. And you would understand in that area that people are wanting to try different things. But that, that balance between people trying anything that's available when sometimes the scientific basis is not as good as for some of the treatments you described. Have you any thoughts about that? Uh, well, I, uh, I think the, you, know, you summarise well if both the tension and the um, difficulties that sometimes we encounter because on, uh, from one end, and I think you, again, you will know better than I do that whenever we deal with, um, really with families, there is, and with colleagues, there is the entire spectrum of the, uh, if like the behavior. Um, uh, the, when I say behavior, I mean risk behavior. And uh, I think that there will be families where the idea of a, a devastating disorder um, and even perhaps the idea of trying something experimental is not part of their culture, is not part of their um, uh, of what they want to do. And at the other end of the spectrum, there will be families uh, that they will not left will not leave a stone unturned until their child gets anything, um, whether proven or not. And I think that there is everything in between these. And are using families, but you know, investigators may have the same um, uh, the same uh, uh, push or the same conflict sometimes. Um, uh, and I think it is complicated and I think that you know in a way in places like gosh but you know in, in our community um, I think I feel quite lucky uh, because uh, we don't work in isolation and um, you know there is a strong peer either support or, or lack of support if you're doing something that is uh, not right and uh, in our field um, I think that the the uh, you know that we work in a you know, in a strong international academic environment. And to some extent, that protects us uh, in both directions because uh, it protects us if we want to, you know, if I would be reluctant, I make an example, to consider one treatment, but it has been used in another 15 places worldwide. Um, well, I am exposed to what is happening and, uh, you know, eventually I need to overcome my own um if you like, limited thinking or, uh, or biased thinking. Uh, at the same time, um, if I was going to do something completely innovative but um, not very rational, I would be looked, that whatever I do is looked by all my peers. And uh, I think that really, I think is important. And I find it, you know, scientifically 
a, a very sound way to move forward, but I think it provides some buffering. Now, the buffering doesn't uh, completely abolish people to go on their uh, direction, and of course it does not uh, always um, avoid individual families or individual clinicians that are particularly keen and particularly even in good faith biased towards something to propose things that um, with hindsight are not rational and certainly not in the best interest of a child. And I think at the end of the day, you know, I think I, I always think that I receive a salary to um, provide the uh, children with the best options. And the best option is not necessarily a, a therapeutic intervention or a novel therapeutic intervention. I think, we, you know, that is something that we should always try to remain, keep in mind. I, I think that's really important in terms of expert palliative care for children and the idea that you may do innovative therapies at the same time as making sure that every other aspect of their care is is kind of covered if you like it because obviously if an innovative therapy is not working for a child then that child may sadly die and it's that kind of ability to cover all the options that might be in that child's future and making sure they get the care they need that i think and we, we use our innovative therapy framework trying to make sure that happens that all the options are covered for the family but also i think you mentioned something that's very important in terms of peer review when you really are pushing things and trying something maybe outside the protection of a randomized controlled trial when you have a very rare disease i guess that must be quite tough as a clinician having having peer support as you say from colleagues around the world must at least offer that support which is good i think and perhaps yep, maybe what, what new therapies are coming? What's going to be next in the uh, pipeline, Francesco? Well, one um, area of um, research that has exploded really is that of the um, adenovirus AAV gene therapy. I think mm. this is, uh, you know, is really gaining a traction that most of us didn't expect. We were, um, we were optimistic that uh, AV gene therapy would move fast, but I think the speed at which this is moving and the experience that the field is gathering um, so that the number of conditions where this could be become applicable uh, is increasing by not even the day, by the, you know, by the minute. And I think this is um, probably the biggest revolution that we will see in the next decade. Um, there are at the moment uh, you know, just to for you to be aware, if if it wasn't for COVID nineteen that has slowed down things a little this year, we already are involved in uh, one gene therapy trials, and we would have been involved in four more just for neuromuscular disorder gene yeah. therapy trials. And I think that this is, uh, and I know from my role in the biomedical research center that um, neuromuscular, not the only one, metabolic is the also an area where there is quite a lot happening. So I think this is uh, a, uh, you know, a paradigm shift. Um, and uh, I think this brings, um, at the same time, new challenges, uh, because nothing, you know, I always say also to my families, and uh, that there is, you know, it's unusual, there is a free lunch. Uh, so I think that these are exciting, exciting therapies. Uh, at the same time, uh, they are not without some adverse event and is only knowledge and experience that will allow us to be in a better position to um, 
deploy this treatment in a way that is safe. So um, I think that the the um, if you like we have observed in a number of when I say we uh, I mean the community I don't mean me particularly or exclusively but we certainly have observed um, some adverse event uh, that originally were not completely anticipated and I think that you know whenever you develop a new therapy you need to be excited about the efficacy and some of the efficacy observed with some of these novel therapies is outstanding. It's, it's, it's just incredible, quite frankly. Uh, at the same time, the, um, the, these are um, heavy-duty drugs. They need to be respected. They need to treat them with a lot of respect. And um, some adverse event can be quite significant. And um, I think what, uh, perhaps to give you a perspective of um, um, if you like what I think people like me should be doing or try to do, I'm not saying I'm doing it very well, but I certainly will try. Uh, whenever, well, I, I did realize that in, from, in, in this emerging field, the amount of information as investigator we were obtaining from sponsors was limited, not necessarily because sponsors were uh, malevolently not able to share information, not willing to share information, but, you know, in an emerging field, information is emerging. And um, and sometimes you realize that things are happening uh, while the sponsor uh, may take a little while. So I was concerned about individual problems experienced in one particular gene therapy trial. And therefore, I thought, well, this is a new emerging area. It's not my specific area of expertise, and I need to have more more backup expertise to help me to deal with adverse event. And in addition, as these are coming to uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital as one of the major uh, therapeutic venues for the future, it will be useful for other investigators as well. So we did set up uh, with the help of the Biomedical Research Center and GOSH and ICH, uh, UCL expertise from a multidisciplinary team, a uh, if like a working group to discuss emerging adverse event from AV gene therapy. And some of our recommendations I'm quite proud of, I, they've been now adopted by many sponsors uh, in their clinical trial protocols. And uh, so we publish, uh, in a, in a, we, we publish in a website uh, of our institute the, our if like recommendation and uh, what our multidisciplinary group uh, recommended us in terms of uh, uh, ways to minimize some of the risk for some of these adverse events. And, right. and this is, uh, is, is, is now part of um, uh, protocols under development by a number of sponsors. But it just shows, you, you know, this, one has to be aware this is new territory and one has to be humble and uh, consider that um, we know what we know, we do not necessarily know what we don't know. Yeah, unknown unknowns. Very good. Um, I, I guess you, you did mention COVID there in passing. I just be interesting to hear what your thoughts are on how the COVID pandemic and the huge changes in healthcare, how that's held back uh, new therapies. You've mentioned several new treatment trials have been delayed. And obviously, we're now approaching possibly a second wave. And there is this prospect of further delay. That, that must be really hard for your community when you're seeing children affected with diseases and hoping to use new treatments, yet there's this un, unpredictable 
pandemic that's holding everything back. Do you, do you want to explore that a little bit? Well, I think that the um, it, it, I think it, it is complicated. I, I suppose the um, one corollary is that many of our patients are also a fragile patients from uh, the perspective of uh, COVID nineteen complications. So I think that there is, if you like, there is a, a I, I suppose a justification that makes families um, understand the the practical problems a, a little is a little better i suppose from an ethical perspective I, the continues nevertheless to be as a, i'm not saying tension but you know is like a um, an issue related to sometime the um, and i uh, i'm not referring to our hospital in a particular way, but you know, there was yesterday a webinar of all the clinical trial site for neuromuscular disorder in the UK. So we just discussed where the entire neuromuscular uh, pediatric community is. So I'm referring to in general. I think in many in many hospitals, research is seen as a something that can be put aside, and yeah. it, yeah, it's, it's not considered. Yeah, so it's not considered, and of course, I'm not saying that you have a patient in respiratory failure for COVID and then you don't deal with that. That's okay. But I think that, you know, in the reopening of clinical activities, research is left a little aside as if as if it were something that could be considered when everything is resolved, while um, yeah. I, many of us feel that is also not right because the, uh, you know, you do need uh, to make sure that the right of people to take part in research are also um, maintained. So I think it's, it is, there is a little distension and uh, there is always the, the danger that research is seen as the poor uh, cousin, if you like, of clinical medicine. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, that's a, certainly a tension in there, but I, um, yeah, your, your arguments are well made. Um, I, I guess I can't, can't have an ethics conversation without money being mentioned, Francesca. And I guess I, I'm interested. Some of these new treatments are incredibly expensive compared to other treatments for children. And I wonder how that how you'll consider that the treatment might have a cost of hundreds of thousands a year for a child. And yet we have other services, even in pediatrics, sort of community pediatrics, where the cutbacks have been quite difficult. Uh, you know, social care has been fairly well hammered in the UK, particularly, and even some cancer treatments have been rationed. And yet, we're spending quite a lot of money on individual children. On a, on an individual sense, when you're caring for a child, developing things, of course, that seems straightforward. But I wonder if you ever have that pause and ability to look more broadly and think about healthcare funding, or or do you have to just carry on trying to develop new treatments because that's what you're doing? How, how do you think about it? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't. I will not thank you for this question because it's a very difficult one. Uh, the uh, the um, so I, I just give you, uh, if you like, a different different um, perspective of of the argument from the different side. So, from one perspective, I think that the cost of some of these treatments have taken us by surprise, and as uh, investigators, we did reach out to some of the sponsors, saying that we felt that some of the cost of these drugs would preclude access to our patient. So if you like, you know, as you realize, I don't have any um, any personal gain for any of this uh, treatment. So in a way, my interest is that drugs are available for patients. And 
um, some of the costing that have been uh, flagged appear to be uh, out of proportion to what even somebody like me had expected. And we made this clear to the sponsor. To some extent, in this country, there is a good system, although it's maybe um, it can be improved uh, in terms of the timing. And I believe that NICE is a very tough um, negotiator. And therefore, uh, although I do not know the final price, I know that the price that is paid in the States for many of these drugs is really becomes a fraction uh, when it comes to this country. So I do not know the, the number, but I think that the, 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 if like the, the hundreds of thousands of pounds is not what will be paid in this country. And I think it is important also to, to bear that in mind because maybe the, the system that is set up by pricing in the States is just a rot system that needs to be uh, reconsidered. So that is one end of the spectrum. The second, uh, uh, the opposite end of the spectrum, and that is an area where people like me and other neuromuscular people need to do more work, is to have a better appreciation of what is the cost to have one of these conditions. And when I say cost, I just do not mean the cost of, you know, hospital treatment, you know, six every six months. But I mean, I make an example. If you were the mum or the father of a child with type 1 SMA, your life is changed until the child dies, meaning mum will need to, usually it's mum because of, you know, uh, the way uh, sex, sexism works, but um, uh, mum will be waking up six, seven, eight, nine times in the night to provide the care for the child for years. And then the um, the number of times this patient go into hospital, the, the, the home adaptation and so on. If you start to add this up for the duration of the life of some of these patients, you end up with numbers and uh, forget about the lack of um, productivity of these people. You end up with numbers that at the moment really have not been well quantified, but these are also big numbers. Leave aside the emotional uh, burden. So... I think that probably th these are the two extremes. I think drugs that probably look ex exceedingly expensive and, uh, uh, and uh, on one hand, the second is lack of understanding of what is the true burden, economic and not just economic, of this condition. And, and ideally come in between these two polar areas uh, close to the center would be important. So together with other people, we're also doing some work to better quantify um, if like impact of some of these conditions on uh, on um, productivity, on cost, on and so on and so forth, that may be uh, useful. And there is very little research has been done on that area. Yeah, I, I think that's important. The kind of balancing the the non um, accounted for costs and the human costs to the families very much. Who, as you say, may, maybe both their lives, if they're a, a couple of parents, and the rest of the family, siblings, grandparents. Their lives have changed, and the impact of that is very under-researched. I, I would absolutely echo that. Um, I guess I, I, another, I, I do like difficult questions. That's ethics, I think, Francesco. But um, I, I know you've had some experience, and I, other colleagues have had this too. H how do you manage the kind of pressure groups from parents, families, others who want expanded access? So you have medicines that have a particular um, indication. You have an evidence-based in... I don't know, I'll, I'll pick these where the data says it only works if you're under two years of age or three. 
And you have parents of slightly older children want to have access to the drugs thinking, well, it might do something for my child, but we haven't got the evidence base in that population yet, or it's an associated condition, something else. How do you manage that situation where people really want to try access to drugs, but the data doesn't support that scientifically or or, or the data isn't available yet? It, it might be something that you think, well, might help, but there's no data. And, and trying to get support for access to medicines is, is a tough area, I think. Well, I think that the um, I, th- I I come back to uh, what I said at the very beginning in terms of the peer support. I, I think that the um, this is uh, an area where you know we do need to support each other. I think on one hand you don't want to be the nihilistic person who uh, does not wish to look into the reality and and consider and, and feel like uh, and looks things slightly laterally. At the same time don't want to be the maverick that does think that that makes no sense. So I think that the peer support and bringing the advocacy group with you is important. I, I found that, um, you know, advocacy group, uh, as you realize, uh, you know, is, is, is there, there are multiple, it's like democracy, there are multiple parties and multiple uh, viewpoints also from advocacy group. And often, um, some of the uh, views from some of the advocates are the more um, noisy, but not necessarily represent the enti- entirety of uh, the position. So we try to, uh, if you like, um, we, we try to identify first the problem, then to discuss it with the various advocacy, advocacy group, with all of them, the one from the far left to the far right, and to try to identify a common ground for the majority of the people. That sometimes still leaves either the far right or far left uh, outside, but at least uh, an opinion or a position statement uh, is a position statement that doesn't come just from you know Francesco Montoni, but comes from uh, me and my peers and uh, several of the uh, groups from the advocacy groups, uh, and that I think helps to uh, show how sometimes complicated it is and is not that you're dealing. And we do this often because otherwise. You know, especially in smaller centers uh, um, where perhaps uh, you have a single-handed colleague who will be quite fragile. Uh, when I say fragile, meaning you know more exposed uh, yeah. to yeah, pressure, and yeah. and therefore we we try to uh, make sure that there is a consensus, uh, and that this consensus is 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 shared so that you know my colleague in a in a smaller center cannot be put uh, under pressure and at least he or she can say, well, this is a consensus. So I, I will make a specific example of something we have done for one particular drug very, very recently. I better not say the drug and, so, and the process precisely. But uh, many investigators were um, not entirely comfortable with one particular label that would allow a wider access than us investigators are comfortable with. And we felt important to document this in a peer review paper that has just been out two weeks ago, because we wanted the field to, re- to realize that, of course, could be done, but please don't bully people who, are, uh, who have concerns, because we have concerns. I think it's, I mean, 
none of this is in a, a vacuum and medicine is kind of part of society and, and part of the the drive for patient access the we had the Satchi Medical Innovation Bill in the UK became the Access to Medical Treatments Innovation Act in 16. And then the US federal uh, right to track in 2017 are all all kind of trying to push and at different levels for a, a kind of, I mean, some might say a populist approach that people just have a right to try new treatments whenever they want to try them. Um, I think we've kind of, the UK has a slightly more, um, well, I don't know, it's, it's hard to be very different in different countries, but trying to be more rational in terms of how you work through whether to try something right or not for individual patients is, is a really tough area. I think your point is good that peer support um, is crucial for clinicians. But I, I think for families, that balance between peer support for the families of a child that have a rare disease or a complex illness and that shared experience can be absolutely massively important for, for people. But but just occasionally it can be that very, very difficult tension between we want a right to try these medicines and um, that is that right, is that wrong? I think it's a, a fascinating area that will only develop over the next few years. Um, lots more to think about in that area. But I guess while I've got you, I, I want to push you on a little bit and ask, uh, a bit about uh, well, topical politics as well, Francesco. And obviously, you uh, you move from a wonderful land where they have wine and sunshine and great food, and you've come to live in London. I don't know. I'm not sure why you would do that, but the effect of the European situation, and I think the we have that idea about a right to try treatments in different European states, which obviously the UK is withdrawing from the European Union. I wonder about your experience of that, the difference in licensing in different countries and parents feeling they want to go to other countries to try treatments. I think it's a it's a very interesting area of modern medicine that really was fairly, I, I think it happened quite commonly in the cancer world for people to have treatments that weren't available in one country to move somewhere else. But this tension between, well, a country has chosen not to license a treatment rather than not have it available. Um, and parents want to move or, or patients want to move to other countries. What are your thoughts about that? And, and what changes do you think will happen if we, um, when the European Union situation changes? What do you think? Well, um, I think that the, uh, I, don't ask political question to an Italian who just moved here and ask what he thinks about Brexit because the, the, <laughs> that will go in a different direction. But the, I think the... I, I think uh, <laughs> but uh, but uh, you can delete this part from the the, the record. Uh, but no, I'm joking. But the I, th I think what you know as as everything there are um, the good things and the and the things that can be improved. Nothing is perfect, and I I am one of those people who thinks that everything can be improved. So I did praise before nice uh, because eventually you know believe it or not I pay tax and I like drugs to cost less and less, because that means that my tax and the one of everybody will be better spent. So I think that is an, a crucial function that, that, that NICE has. At the same time, I would really like um, a system where there is much earlier engagement of um, NICE and the pricing, and NHS England pricing, uh, regarding emerging treatments. Because in uh, one particular condition, uh, that is spinal muscular atrophy, uh, I think there has been a, I, the only way I would describe it would be a bureaucratic delay that was mm. necessary um, 
to make the drug available eventually to a patient in this country. And this delay, um, I think we were probably the last country in the world to adopt this drug. And when I say that, I just mean it. I mean, not the Western world, but of the world. And therefore, um, if like, uh, and this is irrational because you know why it is irrational? Because um, the, a generation of patients, not a generation, but a patient for a few years, have uh, advanced in their disease considerably, and these treatments are effective um, once you start in early treatment. But then these children became uh, eligible to receive the treatment, but with much worse outcome. And that is not a, you know, it would have been a cynical but rational choice that of never adopting the drug. But once you decide to adopt it, you want to start people as early as possible. And I think there, I think, was, a um, again, a difference uh, in, in this country compared to other countries, what is considered a rare disease. The, the threshold for rare disease is unique in this country and uh, uh, compared to the rest of the uh, Western uh, world. And that meant that some, some of the nice evaluating committee um, consider some of the drug for conditions that are really, really, um, you know, considered rare in the rest of the world, were considered in the same way, both in terms of the pricing mechanism and in terms of the, um, the, the way these drugs should be delivered as, you know, a drug for asthma or a drug for hypertension. And this is clearly inappropriate. Uh, and indeed, even within NICE, uh, there was a lot of discontent for, um, uh, if like, the fact that there was complete inflexibility between this, um, if like, the, the common condition evaluation route and the very uh, rare condition evaluation route. And uh, in other countries, uh, for example, Scotland, um, this has been acknowledged and an intermediate um, system to appraise and swiftly uh, give a yes or no was developed for this particular drug. And in Scotland, this particular drug became available a year before in England. I think this, this we don't need, um, quite frankly. This is not good. This is not good for anybody. So I think the, 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 this is an area where I think there could be uh, improvement. And whether there is alignment with Europe or not, I think that's a political decision. But we cannot have ping pong uh, between committees for years to decide who will be dealing with that drug. Uh, that, I think, is not good use of time, it's not good use of money, and is not a good outcome for my patient. Thank you very much, Francesca. I'm, I'm going to not finish on a, a difficult note, and thank you for being so open about that. I, I want to think of a, a more personal thing for you, and uh, I, I, you know, the question is, how exciting is it to see children you know doing well who you you know would once have died or been severely affected with the disease and and responding to treatments on a personal level I, i'm putting words in your mouth but i think that must be very very exciting well i think you know um what i you know what i firstly i'm i'm interested with for my academic background of molecular mechanism and in what has been uh if like exciting is and is now to see that you can, you know, there is the harvest of understanding molecular mechanism and, and, and on how this can be trans transforming people's life. But I think, you know, I receive 
videos of um, uh, from the families unsolicited uh, sent me in terms of what their children are able to do. And I think, you know, for me, is the, part, the happy participation to life of these children. Uh, you know, I, the, the, some of these videos make you, you know, happy for a week. Uh, and uh, I think that is, you know, this is transformative for these children. It's going to be transformative for society. And I think it is a privilege to be part of this. And I think, you know, not... Uh, I think on a balanced way, not everybody has, you know, uh, is a, um, not everybody will be able to do that. But I think this is the beginning of a journey. And I think these are really, really transformative therapies. Brilliant. I, I didn't want to take you away from your microscope, really. But that, that scientific bench to bedside to seeing a disease transformed, I think, is astonishing. So, Francesco, thank you very much for, for uh, taking part in the podcast. I hope people have found it interesting. And uh, we'll be back with our next podcast uh, next week. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to GOSH Pods. If you would like more information on courses and educational opportunities offered by GOSH Learning Academy, please visit the website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy or follow us on Twitter at GOSH Learn Acad.